Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick. And I'm Karen Zadinga. In sharing these stories, these perspectives on innovation, creativity, change, and leadership, we hope to generate some positive turbulence for you. Thank you for joining us. Most of the journalism we encounter today asks what went wrong yesterday and who's to blame? Or so says David Beers of the TIE. He, Summers McKay, and Christy Jansen of the Optimist Daily joined Karen and me for a rich and robust exploration of solutions journalism. What is solutions journalism, you may ask? Solutions journalism is about investigating and reporting on potential solutions to our biggest challenges. It's investigative journalism with a focus on how people are responding to and solving problems. It is a potential answer to the emotional inflammation that many of us are experiencing today. Solutions journalism is a potent form of positive turbulence, and as you'll hear, can be an innovation catalyst. I see it as having similar characteristics to design thinking. And I feel like the ideas Dave, Christy, and Summers explored with us provide a kind of guide to navigating the periphery. Summed up, it could be phrased, look outside, look within, and live the future now. But before we begin, let's take a moment to acknowledge our supporting organizations. The Positive Turbulence Podcast is brought to you by AMI, an innovation learning community that is celebrating 40 years of supporting innovation and creativity for organizations and individuals. Learn more at aminnovation.org. Also, we'd like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. To hear our theme song, Late Night Sunrise, and other great music, visit macavenue.com. Let's begin with a few introductions, and David, we'll start with you. You are founder and, I think, was once managing editor of the Taiyi.ca, but are no longer the managing editor there. Is that correct? I was editor-in-chief. I was the founder and the editor-in-chief, and then stepped away for a few years, and then I came back a couple of years ago, and my fancy title now, self-assigned, is Editor for Initiatives. Nice. Ah. And that, may, that means I can do pretty much whatever I want to do. So. You get to do whatever. Editor for initiative. I initiate something and therefore I do it. <laughs> That's right. If somebody says, why are you wasting time on that? I say, this is an initiative. Exactly. Nicely done. Are you in Vancouver? Based in Vancouver. And, and we cover sort of concentric rings, the lower mainland of Vancouver, then out to all of BC and then Western Canada and Cascadia. Mm-hmm. All right. And Summers? Yes. Hello. Hello. And who are you? And what do you do? <laughs> I'm the CEO of the Optimist Daily. I started as a consultant. The Optimist Daily, we're at a point in the organization where it was, can we make a business out of optimism? I was brought in as a practical, tactical business person to say, how do we turn this into a do good, do well enterprise, not just a do good enterprise. <laughs> I came from a, a long experience in marketing and communications. I actually joke, most people don't use their college degrees for their careers, but my college degree is in mass communications from Berkeley. I am doing it. You're doing it. That's great. Exactly. Um, <laughs> that overlaid with kind of a life of experience in positive storytelling. I worked as a reality TV show producer and felt sickened by my experience doing that and actually left the industry 
to go get a business degree in order to figure out how to make business success out of the positive storytelling and out of telling stories and educating in positive ways. We have over a million aggregate impressions every single month across all of our social channels and our email distribution. And now our podcast, The Optimist Daily Update, and which we love doing. And I am just honored to share the stage with my chief content officer, Christy Jansen. Christy, do you want to take it from here? Sure. I've been with The Optimist Daily for about three years. The original brainchild there was a solution journalism from our original founder, which is Urien Camp. And he's a, a, a Dutch guy who's been at the forefront of solutions journalism for the last like 30 years. He started a magazine called Ode. There's also a Dutch version, which was The Optimist. And coming here to the US, this is the English language version, but print journalism, not happening so much anymore. So together with Ronaldo Brudico, who is the founding CEO of an organization called the World Business Academy, it's a nonprofit think tank located in California. They were friends for many years and they got together to create a digital version of the Ode magazine, which then was rebranded as the Intelligent Optimist, which is the Optimist Daily. That was about three years ago. I got brought in at that point to help organize the team. Urian has since left. I took over the chief content role. Our goal is really to help our audience and help the world shift their focus, shift their attention back to what's working in the world and also in their personal agency. I feel like the way that the media is designed and the way that 24-hour news cycle is designed is to really inflame our animal instincts, which is fear and rage. That's what keeps our attention. I once was a newspaper reporter in a small (laughs) town. My editor actually said the words to me out loud, if it bleeds, it leads. People think that's the joke that whenever news are characterized on television, but the simple fact is it is not a joke. Most newsrooms do anchor to that belief. Yeah, it's obvious. If you have half a brain, you should see that. And it's really the news cycle is targeted at sheep, not humans. I love your, your the use of the phrase agency. I think that's what differentiates humans from other animals out there in a sense, but the fact that we can make choices to create the kind of outcomes that would prefer, you know, mm-hmm. really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Parent, who are you? Cool. And now I- <laughs> <laughs> tell us who you are. I am the co-host of the Positive Turbulence podcast. Among and you brought it, you brought us all together to have fun this morning. It started because I had never heard the term solutions journalism. I was watching a thing that the Tai does with some of their people called three, I think three great questions or just three questions, Dave. Three things. Three things. <laughs> it was an interview that your editor was doing with you on three things. He started talking about solutions journalism. I thought, what is this solutions journalism thing? Why have I never heard of this before? To me, that sounded like something that dovetailed well into the concept of positive turbulence. That's where this conversation between the five of us began. If you wouldn't mind taking a second, and we'll just go around the, the table on this. For you, David, what is solutions journalism? I come out of a hard news, social issues, magazine reporting background. Worked at the major newspaper in San Francisco, worked at Mother Jones magazine, did a lot of reporting around refugee issues. So a lot of grim facts needed to be conveyed. A lot of power needed to be held accountable. That's an important role for journalism. I would say most reporting, most journalism asks what went wrong yesterday and who's to blame. 
which needs to be done. Right. Solutions journalism asks, what might go right tomorrow? And then investigates, and I use that word advisedly, investigates, who is showing the way. What might go right tomorrow and who is showing the way? It's not spin. It's not advocacy. It's subjecting change makers to rigorous journalism techniques. As a result, what you're doing is you're providing citizens with information, not about what went wrong yesterday and who's to blame, which can just bum you out and seem like the horse is already out of the barn. But actually, it, it equips citizens with something cool that we might streak for if we could get organized and advocate for it. But again, the journalism itself is an advocacy, but it empowers people to be advocates for positive change with with real facts and real examples. Mm -hmm. And I see Summers and Christy are just like both nodding, nodding, nodding. (laughs) Do do one of you two want to jump in on that definition of solutions journalism? The way that the news, as you talked about, if it bleeds, it leads. That's the whole way that, that the standard journalism is built. Also, it is a business. And so there's the corporate interest or the media interest in keeping subscribers, keeping people engaged. I agree with how Dave described it, that the typical headlines are about what went wrong and who's to blame. It's reporting on the breaks in society, the breaks in your community, the breaks in your government, the breaks in business, what solutions journalism does and asks, so then what? Instead of focusing on only what went wrong, it also focuses on how do you repair that? How do you get to the next level? I love how you describe that, where it's, it's looking at tomorrow. It's not looking at yesterday. It's looking at the future. It's still giving rigorous attention to that. Yes, we use the word optimist, but we're not blind-eyed Pollyanna. We don't focus on feel-good stories. That's what the conventional news media uses for the human interest. The positive stories is about somebody who saves a dog or somebody who wins an award that is about being a good Samaritan. Those are great. That's interesting. But what we're interested in more is the solutions to the problems that are really rife in our world. And like what Dave said, that helps people get back in touch with what they can do and what is working as opposed to what's broken. With the Optimist Daily, our goal is to highlight the solutions journalism that is being produced out there. We don't do a lot of our own reporting. We're more of a news curation site. With the 24-hour news cycle too, now there's an explosion in Beirut and you see it every 15 minutes. 30 years ago, you'd have it in your morning paper and you'd see it on the nightly news. You would maybe have two touch points. Now it's like constantly being fed into your cell phone and it's hard to avoid what the Optimist Daily is trying to do is highlight the, the things which are not headlines in terms of CNN headline news, but rather help people pay attention to things that are working, the solutions that are being built for tomorrow, and how can we get connected to those and bring them into our communities and bring them into our lives. Something that's starting to stand out for me is a possible difference in solutions journalism as compared to headline news, whereas that explosion in Beirut is information it doesn't ask me to, to do much about it, except maybe talk about it. I'm starting to hear that solutions journalism may have an embedded call to action of some kind that you're actually trying to lead to behaviors that could have better outcomes. Am I hearing it right? I would add to, to what my colleagues have said in that solutions journalism is not looking to offer a checkmate in an argument. We're not looking to offer a fact that's your checkmate in your argument. Instead, we're looking to offer and serve tactics in a respectful conversation to improve the future. 
a lot of times headline journalism is about that checkmate. Everybody's doing the gotchas. What solutions journalism is about is stripping away that argument and contentious behavior and instead saying, what is the conversation we can have to affect change? And what are the reasons to do it beyond winning an argument? What are the fiscal reasons to make a positive change? What are the greater solutions that will actually lift society as a whole, regardless of where you fall in the political spectrum? Certainly in the United States, we have a very caustic and toxic political environment that is just pitted against one another. Our goal is to stop the arguments and invite conversation. David, does that idea of a call to action resonate with you? It's interesting. Solutions itself is a bit of a polarizing word because it makes you sound a bit arrogant. I know how to solve this problem, and I'm going to tell you. When I first started talking about this stuff years ago, I I preferred the term future-focused journalism because as citizens in a democracy, we're looking back at what went wrong. We want to hold people accountable for it. But we also are asked to collectively make decisions about what kind of future we want. To pick up Summer's point, a lot of conversation happens on the internet. A lot of debating and marshalling of arguments that are based on values happens. What I see a shortage of and what I'm trying to do with our solutions journalism is reporting and investigation of actual best practices that are happening on the ground. You could send a reporter in with a set of questions, it wouldn't really matter what their ideology was. For example, here in Vancouver, we have something called the Insight Clinic. It's a safe injection clinic where drug users can go and inject themselves with hard drugs, opioids, and a nurse will be there to make sure if they OD, they don't die. That's an experiment going on. That's one approach to uh, the harm that drugs do to society. It's very fraught. It's a very difficult concept for most people to wrap their heads around. The way we would report that is probably not to offer it as the solution, but we would say Vancouver has a serious overdose problem. Mm -hmm. Four times more people have died from opioid overdoses in Vancouver than COVID-19. And the numbers are going in the opposite directions. What you do with solutions reporting is you go to the Insight Clinic And you gather all the data that it's produced over the last three, four years. How many lives have been saved? You look at how many people have maybe been drawn into rehabilitation through the insight process. You talk to people who staff the place. You talk to people who use the place. You talk to people who used to use the place and don't anymore. And you talk to the managers of the social infrastructure around it, the politicians who allowed this to happen, the health officials who said this was necessary. How are they feeling about it now, right? This is the kind of reporting that that doesn't really happen in the op-ed page. This can happen in the news pages because it's based on old-fashioned investigative reporting techniques. You'll have a problem if organizations aren't transparent. They won't show you their data. If they just spin you all the time, that just simply calls on you to be a better reporter. You also have to go into solutions reporting with, with the understanding that the whole thing might fall apart and it might not end up being a very positive solution at all. But again, that's the difference between going in, wanting a feel-good, positive spin story and actually investigating potential solutions. Does it start with a problem? Is it a problem-based approach? To me, it starts when the problem is fairly well understood to be a problem in society. Most citizens are feeling a lot of anxiety about it. They accept what we're doing is not good enough. And so you don't have to do a ton of reporting to convince people it's a problem. 
most of your reporting is, well, we all agree, for example, that students of color are being punished at a higher level by the school system. Let's look into that and what can be done. What are some best practices? What you've done is you've equipped decision makers and politicians, as well as the average citizen, with some information and some tools to make important decisions. So it's not always, to go back to your question, it's not always a call to action for the average citizen to go out in the streets and demand something. Often it's more pedestrian than that. It's, oh, thank you. I didn't know that. And I'm the deputy minister in charge of this issue. Now I can make better decisions. Summers, Christy, do you have that same sense of, I know that you're curating news, but I'm sure that the lens you're putting on your curation, is it similar? Are you looking for a known problem? We like to have a conversation with our readers and we like to understand what solutions they are finding in addition to what we are curating. We had an interesting email this morning from a reader who suggested that we have a conversation with our editorial team about repositioning how we talk about climate change. And one of the language choices that we have made on the site and many people make is that it's called fighting climate change. Our readers presented us with the idea that the very idea that we are in a fight is actually polarizing perhaps we could reposition it in other ways. Christy, you reflected on that and reflected on language and the power of language to create solutions with the editorial team. And it just begot a really interesting conversation that our team is open to evolving how it is we tell solutions, how it is we share stories. Because we as journalists and as publishers of media cannot say that we are the boss of storytelling. It is a collaborative experience and our readers, we are all reader funded. I know Tai is also reader funded. Independent journalism is reader funded. The readers become an absolutely critical part of that. The readers who take the time to say, hey, we'd like to make this recommendation or here's a solution that we're looking for. That's where we say, okay, yes, this is a real problem. I really do think there is a movement afoot of solid reporting that is focused on changing the hyperbolic narrative and actually getting people invested in what can be done instead of just all of what's broken. It is looking at what the problems are that are currently being talked about and hounded upon and also the things that don't make it to the front page but are endemic in our society. For example, the opiate crisis here in the United States and all of these other diseases of despair, as they're calling them, and and finding out the, the places like the Insight Clinic that you're talking about. I think there's similar types of programs here in the United States that are being investigated and then seeing how can we look at them without prejudgment and then present the solutions so that they are available to our readers, whether they are just a, a regular citizen or a policymaker. And that is definitely what drives our interest in looking at what's happening in the world without a, a presupposed understanding of what is the right thing to do. But just being open to the fact that we can do something, I think is something that I personally have made it my mission to try to reignite in the world. While I'm not interested in necessarily inspiring a call to action, I do want to let people be informed about what's really happening. What we're trying to do is highlight the solutions and highlight the research so that people can make their own decisions and get involved in a more substantial kind of way. I agree with you. I I think that the problems are well known, but I would say that the problems are completely misunderstood. 
what are the root causes, what are the, the influences of the systems that are layered on top of each other that continue to fuel the problems. Sometimes it takes a reconceptualization of the problem to understand really what are the drivers. Because if you really want to create change, sometimes the obvious reaction to a problem doesn't create a solution. It actually makes the problem worse. That's a real challenge. I want to ask each of you, we use the term turbulator on the Positive Turbulence podcast to talk about somebody stimulating positive change. To me, all three of you fit that description really well. What I'm wondering about is, do you have a story about something you covered or a story that you're maybe working on now that you're seeing those positive outcomes? Do you have a story about how you influence positive change? I have a bunch. I'll give you one, my favorite one. And this is what kind of got me going on the whole thing. Back in 2002 or something, when I decided to really throw myself at this and name it Solutions as Journalism for myself, it was by looking back at all the magazine pieces I'd done and edited and seeing the ones that seemed to have the best response, the most kind of love. It wasn't the internet back then, so you couldn't count clicks, but just the, the sense of joy and embrace and everyone being happy that article was in the world. And it was these kinds of future-focused pieces. Here's the one that got me going on the whole thing. Back in the mid-80s, I was writing for the, the big magazine in the Bay Area. It got tucked into both newspapers on Sunday. It was called Image, but it was actually substantive. I wrote this piece that I was pretty proud of, and it was about how the whole economy was going to move to the suburbs. That with computers and tech, everybody was going to live out in sprawlandia. And if you love cities, too bad, because they're going to hollow out. And sprawl is an environmental nightmare, favors cars, it's alienating at some level. But too bad, because uh, that's where these giant business parks are being located, and that's where the new labor force was for data entry. And I wrote this cover story for the magazine, and I think at the time about a million people magazine. It was amazing, because everybody who got the paper read it and everyone in the households. I got this call from a guy named Peter Calthorpe, and he said, hey, I read your story in in the magazine. Uh, What did you think of your story, he said. And I said, I liked it quite a bit. I was pretty proud of it. And I said, what did you think of it? He said, I hated it. And if you come to lunch, I'll explain why. So I did. And Peter Calthorpe at the time was the former chief architect of California. He worked with Jerry Brown. His job was to design big buildings for the state. He had designed an environmental building that didn't go well. It was so well sealed up that people passed out at their desks from off-gassing. So Peter was out of a job. He won't mind me telling this story because you'll hear how it ends. So he was out of a job and he was teaching at Berkeley. We had lunch and he said, sprawl doesn't have to be sprawl. You can run a light rail through and densify just a bit and have walkable neighborhoods and actually go to a more traditional style of street where you have uh, front porches and you have back alleys. And let me show you. And he drew a little uh, diagram on a napkin called the pedestrian pocket. And I said, that's pretty cool. He said, yeah, why don't you write an article about that? I actually got him and, and another architect at Berkeley to tell me how they would redesign suburbia. That was the, the title of the cover story of a month later, redesigning suburbia. A guy named Phil Angelides, who was the top I think he was top Democratic fundraiser at the time in California. He's also a major developer. He read that article and he phoned up Peter Calthorpe and he said, 
I've got a bunch of land outside of Sacramento and I'm trying to build a town for 35,000 people and I'd like to build it according to your design. Basically, what was on the napkin, (laughs) he gave me a lunch, right? Calthorpe has gone on to be, if you Google him, you'll see he's, he's a massive figure in urban planning. He helped start what was called the New Traditionalism. Mm -hmm. If you go and read his book called The Next American Metropolis, in the foreword, he'll say, none of this would have been possible without an article written by David Beers long ago. To me, that's like the best journalism award I've ever got. Somebody who actually built a massive real thing because he was given the resources, you know, through, through somebody reading the journalism. But... Yeah, just as recently, and I, I won't go on, on, but just as recently as a few years ago, the Tai did a bunch of stories about why can't we build inexpensive housing for homeless people out of shipping containers? We didn't have an experiment locally that we could report on. What we did, though, is we looked overseas. We looked at Europe and we asked, is our future maybe happening somewhere else right now? And Europe was going gangbusters on building modular housing out of shipping containers. Our reporter talked to everybody in town who could be involved in this. The government, the shipping container magnet, the builders, homeless folks, co-op people. And they all agreed it could be done, but they were all waiting for the other person to get going. When the article appeared, I don't know if we created turbulence so much as more of a catalyst. It actually triggered everybody to start talking to each other and say, this is possible. And now there's a lot of modular housing built in Vancouver. They look great. Yeah. They're clean, nice places. Super yeah. cool. Amazing. It brings a, a phrase to mind. It's called be the butterfly. And it, it refers back to the, the concept of the butterfly effect, which suggests that I think the original saying was a, a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil can create a tornado in Texas or something like that. But it's the belief that If you can go in and and create a little bit of change that influences a few others, that if you have the right conditions, that small change can turn into a massive, powerful force. Talk about optimism. I'll see your insect metaphor and I will raise you (laughs) because the one I use is the honeybee for journalism because basically what our reporter Monty did with that shipping container story is he acted like a honeybee moving around a garden. So you had the government sitting there saying, I don't know. And you had the shipping container guy saying, I'd sell you shipping containers cheap if you wanted to do this. And the builder, Monty met with everybody. In a way, he pollinated the garden. The whole idea started to bloom. I'm going to go the honeybee thing, not the butterfly, Rob. And here's the one that I like to use, which is trim tab idea. I'm a boater. If you can just trim your tabs, you can actually change the whole course and the, the, the energy that you're using becomes so much more efficient to propel your vessel forward. Like that, it just takes a little bit of a small change, a little push, a little nudge in the right direction, and you can go in a very different direction. It doesn't take a ton of force to do that. It just takes a slight adjustment and it turns the entire boat. All of these metaphors are wonderful and informative and inspirational for all of us thinking about how do we shape our societies in a different way? It's about reframing and renaming. I love that conversation. The Positive Turbulence Podcast is brought to you by AMI, a not-for-profit innovation learning community. Here's AMI board member Jenny Bates-Heaton on her first AMI meeting experience. I can picture the energy. I can still remember taking 
my notes and my mind just bouncing around from one thing to another and how I could plug it in and, and what I was working on. So many people have described it before, but it was a little bit of these are exactly the people I need to be around to be inspired. The way that they work off of one another, the supportive nature of the conversations, there was never anything disparaging. There was always a question of curiosity, pure curiosity from everyone. And that's where I like to sit. And so it just felt really natural and wonderful. AMI is proud to announce that we now also offer virtual meetings. We pack in all the goodness of the in-person meeting in a two-hour virtual convening. Find out more at aminnovation.org. Let me tee up a sort of compare, contrast, instigate style question. I've been thinking about solutions journalism. I've been learning a lot from some real pros here. And I keep thinking about the design process. And I asked earlier, is solutions journalism a problem-based approach? The design thinking methodologies, which I use a lot in the work that I do with organizational and cultural change, is a problem-based approach. You identify these things are known as wicked problems. And that phrase has been around for a really long time in the systems thinking and design worlds. Essentially, there's a lot of different ways that you can approach this, but it's a combination of inspiration around something, either you're inspired about the problem, mixed together empathy, understanding how other people think, feel, and see the world and the problem. Then you go into this process of ideation where you create worlds of possibility and eventually you lead to implementation where you put actions in place that try to mitigate, change, solve, whatever the problem could be. That's sort of the design process and about the shortest capsule I can create. I'd love to ask the three of you, compare, contrast solutions journalism to the design process. Uh, Do you see any parallels, any particular differences? It's a great question. I think it's interesting to think about journalism in general as a problem that needs to be solved, potentially. Solutions journalism is potentially one of the ways that we can heal the journalistic landscape or the the mass media landscape, which has been co-opted by advertising, not just for products. Advertising is one of the more effective processes through which our behavior gets designed. Our behavior has been designed or influenced by the ad makers. Now that's even been taken over by algorithms, which are designed to keep us engaged. Now we are the products with our attention, right? So that is a problem. And that's not just journalism, that's just media in general. Journalism has a role in either perpetuating that or going against that. Solutions journalism is is an attempt from the journalistic world to try to counteract some of the baser tendencies of mass media and mass communication. I'm not a journalist by training. I'm an anthropologist. I'm very interested in how culture shapes our thinking. I talk about myself as a media therapist because the Optimist Daily, we are curators of the news, but we have to read everything to decide what merits rebroadcasting. What are the solutions? What are the things that are there to inspire and inform as opposed to inflame. That's what we are trying to do with the Optimist Daily. So I think of myself as a media therapist and like therapists, we need our own support groups, which is our other colleagues on the solution journalism side of things. Thrilled to meet you, David, in the TAI, because you're trying to help shape the conversation in in a positive way, go towards the unbreaking news, as they say on the correspondent. We're not about the latest, greatest scandal, but rather, how can we create the world that we want to live in? And what is the world we want to live in? 
You want to take it on a little challenge around the design process and the solution journalism? Yeah. First of all, one thing that Christy said, I think really made makes the case for solutions journalism. She pointed out that around basically trying to colonize our future, trying to tell us what our future is going to be and so that it feels inevitable. And that's what advertising does. You know, you will own this product. You need in the future to have devices in your house that listen to everything you say and and do what do what you tell it to do. You didn't know that you needed that, but that's now your future. That's a big advertising project, right? And then you, you have all these massive institutions like the military or the government or corporations that have public relations arms, and their job is to convince you of what the future is going to be. And that's why I think journalism does itself a disservice if it says, oh, we don't talk about the future. We don't talk about what can be. We don't listen to advocates for, for, for change because We're just here to report on what's happening right now. I think if what you're doing is you're ceding Hmm. all that territory to the spinmeisters. To go to your design question, which I love (laughs) because I grew up in Silicon Valley. My father is an engineer and I love design. I believe design is one of the hopeful aspects of human nature, but it does require optimistic but cool and rational approach, right? Which is what I'm trying to bring to this style of journalism. Rob, the process that you just described, what if you had several of these design charrettes going on at once. Let's say you took the same problem. Let's go back to uh, drug overdoses, right? And instead of just having one group of people get together and talk about and ideate what could change, what if you had four different groups and they all were grappling with this and they had all been granted resources to try to then build solutions to what they had come up with in their design process? That's going on all the time. And that's where I think the journalist enters the process. For example, there's three ways, in my view, to report on solutions journalism. None of them are to sit down and write an opinion piece about how you think the world should be. The first way is to ask, is our better future happening somewhere else right now? If it is, go there, report on it. You've got something to report on. Another one, is our potential better future happening in our midst right now as a small-scale experiment that could be scaled up? And in the shipping containers case, we look to Europe. Our better future might be happening in Europe right now. Let's bring it in over here. In the Insight Clinic case, we looked at the small-scale experiment, and then we asked, why can't we scale this up? I don't think it's the job of the journalist to sit in a room and spitball ideas about how to get us out of this jam. I think it's the job of the journalist to enter the process at a point where best practices are already being tried, already being realized, and then report on those best practices. That information gets around the garden. Everyone gets pollinated with those best practices information, and then these small experiments can be scaled up, or something that's happening overseas can happen here. The third way is live the future now. For example, the TAI launched something called the 100-mile diet. I don't know if you've heard of that, but back in 2005, locavore Mm -hmm. became the word of the year. One of the big dictionaries named it because everybody suddenly got fascinated with local food. And we were part of that movement because we launched this thing called the 100 Mile Diet. It went everywhere. It became a global phenomenon. James McKinnon and Elisa Smith are a couple and they're writers. They were at my house. I was cooking up Alaskan salmon on my barbecue. And they were laughing at me. 
I said, these are good salmon. These are from the Copper River, man. What are you laughing about? And they said, oh, no doubt. But we have salmon here, Dave. It's British Columbia. This is Salmon Central. What are you doing flying salmon from Alaska? I go, well. And they pointed out so much energy is embedded in food, moving it around the planet. And if you want to deal with climate change, you have to look at local food systems. I said, well, that's really wonky and hard to talk about and explain to people. And they said, that's why we're only eating food grown within 100 miles of our house. And I said, how's that going? They said, not very well. Look at us. And they were like skin and bones. We'll have some Alaskan salmon, but what are you doing? And they said, there's no sugar. There's no beer. There's no wheat within 100 miles of us. We're not eating wheat for a year. We're not eating sugar for a year. Basic stuff. So they wrote this fantastic book called The 100 Mile Diet. And it was this very personal telling of trying to survive on only local food. And what it did is it exposed the weaknesses in the local food system, but it also celebrated local food. And it said, let's all strengthen the local food system together. And they ended up traveling all over North America being invited everywhere. By the way, this was something that really crossed political lines. Like Heartland America, really like red state America, loved having these two come in and talk about the harvest. That's the third one. Thank you for the answer, but also for answering my multi-part question with a multi-part answer. I really appreciate that. I have one addition to the conversation about design thinking. It adds to what David was describing. One of the things that we recognize with emotional inflammation and the reactions that people have is that we have to remember that we are not all on the same page. Looking at those who are doing it better have to recognize that solutions aren't siloed. Solutions are local. We are all arguing from our values, from our purpose, from our perspective. Any assumption that someone is on the exact same page you are is a risky assumption. In the United States right now, a lot of people are feeling very self-protective. And the protection of self is what is causing a huge amount of inflammation here. And we have to recognize that people are coming at things from their own perspective and having an honor and a respect for various perspectives and not just saying, we are in the right. Our truths are the big T's. We are going Taoist here. There are some big truths, but there aren't as many as we think there are. We have to come up with solutions together. I think I think Christy and Summers have raised this as well, but I feel like as the old journalism model collapses, the advertising, it used to be completely pretty much paid for by advertising. Even newspapers, everybody thought they were paying for their newspaper with their subscription. That was probably 20% of their overhead. And you get what you pay for. And so, and I've worked at two major newspapers and there were awfully good journalists at both. But the role that they saw for themselves was basically to create a kind of advertising environment They continually talked about the same issues over and over again that mainly concern their advertisers and strangely took the reader for granted. I think the fact that so much money came from advertisers created kind of a moat between the the newsroom and the reader. It sounds like the Daily Optimist is like the Tai in that when you are reader supported, and we are majority reader supported at the moment, you can't afford to not pay attention to the the concerns of your readers. If you do it right, you build a kind of a communal sense that you're in this together. 
There's a tremendous opportunity here for solutions journalism to cement that. It sounds like the Daily Optimist is doing this, but asking your readers, what are some of the problems that are on their mind? What are some solutions they'd like to see reported on? Do they have some insights into some small-scale experiments that could be scaled up or some best practices? There's a scholar at New York University named Jay Rosen who's done a lot of work around this, around seeing your audience as not an audience, not as readers, but as collaborators with a lot of expertise within their ranks and actually seeking their input. And so you become a vessel for the aspirations and the interests of your readers. First of all, it requires a lot more humility (laughs) as a journalist to be in that mode than when I was fashioned myself some swashbuckling investigative reporter for some big old organization. I think humility is a really important trait to bring to solutions reporting, as Summers is pointing out. And this is why I really put the emphasis on investigating these solutions and reporting on existing best practices and demonstrating through data and results that they are, in fact, best practices. You're basically humbly being of service to this fact-finding operation that's very important to a democracy. How can citizens decide what's possible and what to streak for if they don't have these facts and these stories. We have a lot in common, the Taiyi and the Daily Optimist and your podcast as well. Sounds like we're all moved by the same spirit. I just want to correct our name is actually the Optimist Daily. In talking about advertising as the creation of the consumer mindset, which is something that I think has really been foisted upon us over the last probably 50 years. When you are used to just being a consumer, you're used to being fed the things or there's products that are being made and you're supposed to buy them and keep them in your home. And then you always need more and more. And there's the designed obsolescence in there. So you have to get a new phone every two years. You have to buy a new refrigerator every decade. So that mindset is recent artifact. The idea that we are passively waiting for people to tell us how we're going to get our electricity how we're going to get our content, how we're going to get our materials, how we're going to get our food. We have to buy our food instead of grow it. That is a basic mentality that is now being challenged by things like the internet, where not only are we consumers of information, but we are also creators of information. The idea that we as reader-funded, reader-based journalist operations We have to have a conversation, not just a conversation with our readers, but rather they are part of a community. They are experts just as much as we are. Well, I think, Christy, bringing up consumption, that's the big issue, right, is that we are over-consuming the planet. And that is the reason we have climate change, and that's the reason we have a lot of issues. We also have a very skewing, widening of wealth distribution. And so to me, the humble solutions reporter would be finding best practices for scaling down, but still enjoying the good, recalibrating what it, what the good life means. You know, my daughter's 25 and I just gave her Schumacher small is beautiful as a hopeful gesture. You know, we can have a good life in a scaled down way, but that doesn't seem possible or practical unless it's reported on in, in a real concrete way and, and instead of just sounding like a sermon. We'll be working on that a lot. Wasn't that terrific? A huge thank you to David Beers of the Taiyi.ca, Summers McKay, and Christy Jensen of The Optimist Daily for their time, sharing their experience, insight, and wisdom. 
Hey, lovely listeners, stay tuned for this episode's Positive Turbulence Moment coming right up. First, a huge thank you to AMI who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book and, dare I say, the Bob Woodward of Positive Turbulence. AMI is a pioneering nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. AMI identifies leading-edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation and creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor, for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. And here's our positive turbulence moment. And the Tai, T-Y-E-E dot C-A. What is a Tai, Dave? Yes. So British Columbia and, and Cascadia, Oregon up through Alaska, when Europeans arrived, there were hundreds of thousands of indigenous people here. And the language evolved called Chinook. It was a rather simple language, and it borrowed a lot of words from indigenous languages up and down the coast. It was a language that allowed Europeans and, and indigenous folks to communicate. Tai was one of the key words because it meant a person of substance or a chief or a leader. And then it has gone on to also mean very feisty, large Chinook salmon, king salmon in the United States. It's kind of a prized fish because over 30 pounds is considered a Tai. So our mascot is a fish, and people often arrive there and wonder if it's a fishing site. If you want to share a positive turbulence moment or otherwise comment on what you're hearing, please drop us a line at podcast at positiveturbulence.com. We welcome your thoughts. Be sure to tune in next episode for a conversation with social impact strategist and integrated media specialist Tremaine Chelengat. We'll get into social innovation and the power of storytelling to drive change. You can also head over to PositiveTurbulence.com to find out more about us, get a transcript of this episode, get links to find out more about our guests, or Positive Turbulence. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.